You're listening to a TVO podcast. The following podcast contains coarse language, descriptions of violence, and sensitive themes which may not be suitable for younger audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Previously on Unascertained. Working with the same facts here, what do you mean there are no grounds to lay criminal charges? Unascertained doesn't mean there's no cause of death. It means there could be 10. The superintendent there started getting concerned because I was asking all these questions. You don't fire people if they did what they were supposed to do. There's no dispute that a bunch of people in authority beat the defenseless man and then he died. I'm not sure that beaten is the correct term to use. There was a physical interaction. There's no doubt about that. He won't tell me anything. All I know is I'm being stonewalled. And when you get stonewalled, it makes you very suspicious. When we started to do a bit more of our investigation, we then learned that there was an eyewitness. Hello? Hello, is John people calling? It's just weird because, like, obviously we've been reading about this story for, like, a year and, like, reading over the timeline and stuff like that. And, like, you picture it in your head of, like, what happened. Yeah. You know, like, you have your idea of, like, how it went down. And I've had that in my head for so long. And now I'm going to hear the person who was actually there. Yeah. You know? Get off the yacht. This exit here? Yeah. Hi there. Um, can you tell me, uh, we have a guest here. Can you tell me what room John T. Bowen is in? Back in 2018, the Fakiri family lawyers discovered an eyewitness to Suleiman's death, John T. Bow. They worked with a couple private investigators and were able to track him down. He then gave an interview to the CBC's The Fifth Estate, a Canadian television documentary program but then pretty much disappeared. I had so many more questions, so I tried looking for him for months. He wasn't an easy man to find. It's really quiet. It is really quiet. Like, even in the mornings, usually, there's people oh, coming, going, busy. Hotel yeah. or, like, the airport and stuff. So, over there. We asked Thibault to come to a hotel in Toronto to do the interview, in a room we rented for the day. We wanted to make sure there were no time constraints, and we could hear everything he had to say. Yeah. Hey, John. How's it going, man? How's it going? Nice to meet you. Yeah, nice to meet you. This is Kevin. Kevin, nice to meet you. Thibault walked in wearing a puffy winter jacket and a beanie hat. He placed his overnight bag on the floor and took his jacket off. Thibault was sporting a buzz cut, a short sleeve black and white checkered shirt, and a tattoo on his forearm. He sat down with us and pulled the microphone towards him. So were you born and raised in Lindsay? Is that kind no, of like your I was uh, born and raised in Toronto. Oh, okay. And then uh, my dad, he, uh, I was getting involved with uh, some of the gangs down there in school just he seen me getting gonna start to get into trouble so he uh moved us up north and then it's funny i didn't start getting charged until i moved up north which is weird it's kind of the opposite of what he wanted right but when you move from toronto life up to the the, basically the boonies you you get bored quick there's nothing to do you got to find something to do right yeah 
I mean, yeah, like that's we're not here, like we're not really here about me, right? Like I'm not gonna sit here and and, and and I'm not looking for no sympathy or pity. I know you're trying to get some background on me, but yeah, it's we're not here for me, right? Like for sure, we're, no, we're I here just, for Solomon and absolutely and his family, and it's that's just, what counts. Absolutely, and uh, I, yeah, I know the only reason I ask is yeah, just to I guess understand you a little better. And, I have no personal vendetta against the police or the guards because that's obviously probably been a question in people's minds. Those guards up there, personally, like I know some of the person from the street. I don't, I don't mind them. I get along with a lot of them. Like they've known me since I was 18 years old. But those guards that were working eight seg that day, I've never seen them in the streets. I don't have a personal relationship, bad or good, with them. There's no vendetta. There's no nothing. It's, I hate them for what they did. That's it. I think they should be charged and prosecuted. I'm Yusuf Zin, and this is Unascertained. The jail where Solomon died is in Lindsay, Ontario. And like so many small communities in Ontario, Lindsay began in 1831 as a mill town. But today, Lindsay is the gateway to cottage country, with its hiking trails and stunning lakes. And right smack in the middle of all that charm is the Lindsay Super Jail. If you don't count the vacationers who flock here in the summer, Lindsay's population is just over 20,000 people. So it's not uncommon that John Thibault would actually know a lot of the local law enforcement. Oh yeah, yeah. The OPP are friends with this, the OPP special constables who do the uh, court transfers every day, who are friends with the Lindsay police, who are friends with the COs. They all go to the same bars. I've seen it myself, yeah. It's very tight-knit. To piss them off is not smart. Tebow's been in and out of the Lindsay Jail most of his adult life, so he's no stranger to the correctional system. In 2016, he was sent to the Lindsay Jail for a number of charges, including one for a stabbing. I shouldn't have been there, I can tell you that. Um, I was charged for a stabbing that I didn't do. When I got up to the jail, they said that I was going to be segregated and asked why, and like, for your own safety. I said, well, what do you mean for my own sake? That's my, that should be my choice. So they put me up in segregation. And they put me in the last cell up there, and I sat up there. And like I said, it took me seven and a half months to get to trial, but I walked my first day of trial. You spent seven and a half months? In, seg- in segregation. In segregation? Yeah. And I shouldn't even, I beat the charge first day of trial. I shouldn't even have been in there. So I, like, I shouldn't have seen what i seen either. I shouldn't have been there. What, what was that like? It's dark, they shut the lights off all day and leave the little light on. You're in a small cell, dark all day, you got four corners, so you, you don't miss much. You don't, anything that you hear, the guards walk by every 20 minutes, you, you, you know the sound of their boots hitting the floor, you know this, when they're signing the clipboard side of the cell, you don't, you don't miss a lot. So when something, when you hear something or see something, it stands out. You don't have much to look at in a small cell, right? So Yeah, can you describe the cell? What, like, is it... Square, <laughs> small. I think it's like nine by sixteen or something like that. Hmm. Is there that, a window? There's a one window, yeah. Pointing to the outside, it's just enough to see out to see what you're missing. By the time Suleiman came to the Lindsay Jail, Thibault had been in segregation for about three months, awaiting trial for the stabbing charge. During that time, he would see the same inmate in the cell across from him every day. But one morning. Thibault woke up to find the cell was empty, 
which only meant one thing. So there was a new guy coming and being put in the cell across from me. Thibault didn't know it at the time, but his new cell neighbor would be Suleiman Fakiri. The police report included photos of that cell, and it's not pretty. It's a tiny space with brick walls that are covered in grimy yellow stains. Everywhere you look, the walls are littered with racist slurs, swastikas, and disturbing drawings. The stainless steel toilet has a coating of orange and green mold inside it. The floor is covered in dust and old stains that look caked into the concrete. The ceiling has a large yellow watermark that looks like damage from a leak. And there's a slab of metal off to the side of the cell, which is the bed. This cell was in Segregation Unit 8, also known as 8-Seg. They called the 8-Seg the last stop because that is the last stop. When, when you're a hostile inmate or you're causing shit, that's the last place they could put you. If you, let's say, get a misconduct for fighting on a range, they usually bring you to 2-Seg first because it's set up like a range. You cause shit down there, you piss guards off down there, they bring you to 8-Seg. And when they slam that door and it locks, you've, you've hit the last stop. You can't hurt nobody. You can't be hostile. You're not a danger to nobody because you're locked in, in an eight-seg cell. You're not a danger to anybody. Thibault says he remembers the day Suleiman died, December 15th, 2016, because he had been waiting for his methadone treatment. Methadone is a drug that treats severe pain or opioid addiction. And that's kind of a factor in this because they, they bring you out to get your methadone at the same time every day in segregation, and it's usually around 2 o'clock sharp. So I, I'm usually waiting at my door around 2 o'clock. Thibault told us that at the Lindsay Jail, methadone is administered in the shower stalls. This is to ensure that the inmate is being closely monitored while taking it. So I eat my breakfast, I go back to sleep. I wake up at lunch. When the guard walked by, I didn't know what time it was in my head. I have no, I have no watch in there. I, I asked him, what time is it? And he's like, he's like, 1.20. And I'm like, okay, they're going to be doing methadone soon. And he's like, well, they're busy with something right now. He goes, stop. And so again, about 40 minutes went by. I asked him, so it was around 2 o'clock at this point. When are they going to do methadone? He goes, they're in the middle of something right now. Stop bugging, da 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 I'm like, well, I didn't know at the time, but I guess they were keeping Solomon in the shower. I've never met him, right? I didn't know the school because she can't see there from myself. I'm right at the end. Over an hour and a half after Suleiman had been in the showers and resisting the guard's efforts to get him out, he was finally being escorted to his new cell by six correctional officers. I was getting in close around three o'clock and I hear shackles. I hear clink, 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 clink. I can't see none of this. I go right to my window right away because I think they're coming to get me. That's the only reason why I was at my window. And all I hear is, where's my food? I'm hungry. Uh, and I heard one of the guys say, it's in your cell. You'll get your food when you get in your cell. And now I look and I see bigger guy. It was Solomon, who, like I said, I didn't know at the time, but he was in his boxes or whatever, and he was shackled up, his hands and his feet. And there was five, maybe six guards around him. And um, he gets about two or three cells down. And I see a bigger guard kind of whispers in Solomon's ear. And whatever that guard whispered in his ear, and that's the number one question, what did that guard whisper in his ear? Whatever it was that scared the shit out of Solomon, because all I seen him was he started pushing back like he didn't want to go in the cell. And then that's when the taller guard that whispered something in his ear, right away his pepper spray was out and he was macing him in his face, his eyes, his mouth, his nose, everything. 
Um, they started struggling in the hall. He didn't want to go in the cell. So they, so he's pepper sprayed before he gets in the cell. Yes. How long did he pepper spray him for? Like enough to cover his face, mouth, nose, eyes. Like he made sure, that, especially with the first one, that he got in his mouth. Because remember, the cameras are behind them. According to the police report, there's a CCTV surveillance camera in Aitseg that captures the hallway of the range, but anything inside the cell is out of sight. At this point, I kind of went in shock a bit because I don't know what's going on. Usually when stuff like this happens and they move a hostile inmate from one cell to another, they sh- there's shutters on the outside of the windows. They always shut the shutters. So the inmates in the cells can't see what happened. It kicked off so quick that they never had time to shut the shutters. So I'm watching this and um, the supervisor starts clearing everything out of the cell. There was trays of food in the cell. That was how they were luring Solomon in the cell. He grabs the food trays, he whips them out of the cell. He grabs the mattress, he whips us a bunch of institutional clothes, orange clothes, and they were throwing stuff like that. The police report showed photos of those items that were thrown out of the cell. Among them included a mattress, discarded chip bags, empty toilet paper rolls, a long piece of cloth that resembles a rope, and an orange jumpsuit. But they threw everything out of the cells. And so do they... They push, do they push Suleiman in the cell? Yes, they get him in eventually. They get him in. And then that's when it starts. The beating starts. And so what what did that look like? Strikes, like raw beating blood, just it was bad, man. Like it was, the only thing that came out of the saloon was moan, like grunting and moaning from every time they hit him in the face with those leather gloves. Because there was, there's three big boys there and they were, they were haymaker and they were, they were hauling off on him, man. And as soon as he hit the ground, stomping his head. Every time he hit the ground, wham, punching him, anything they can get in. Stomping his head? Yeah, they were stomping his head. That's how on them they were. Like, they were, it was, and it was aggression, it was anger. According to Thibault, not all six of the guards were participating in the beating. Um, there was one female guard that was with them in the pack. Well, she was scared. In there, there's like a metal... Thing. It's about, I don't know, this high, and that's what they put your mattress on. She had to jump up on that just to get out of the way of the beating. And she was scared. She was newer. I'd never seen her before. Thibault says the female guard wanted to call a code blue, which alerts all available officers in the jail to come and assist. She had the, mic, the radio in her hand and was already asking, I'm going to call it, should I call it, should I call it? And the guy guards kept telling her no. Don't call it. Don't call it yet. He was not physically a threat to them at all. He was trying to get away from them to the point where he ran into that back wall in his cell three times face first and almost knocked himself out, just trying to get away from them. As the long and exhaustive struggle continued, Thibault said he saw that Suleiman even managed to get up off the ground. Three times he got up with all that weight on his back. I watched that guy stand up straight three times with that weight on his back. Because every time they get into the ground, they try to get the one guy would try to get a knee on his neck, and the other guys would hold him down, but he's already cuffed. Usually when they get to the ground, it's so they can get you in cuffs. So he's trying to get away from them. So you get, you get on the ground and you got all that weight on your back, man. You're, 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 that's why he's trying to get away from the cell. That's why he was running into the wall. He, he couldn't, he's fighting for his life. He was just trying to get away from them. And they were not letting him get away. They were not letting him get away. From there, things only got worse. I remember one of the guards putting Solomon's head, like the, the, where the bed goes, there's metal corners, and they're sharp like this. Probably sharp, but they're metal. 
I remember putting, putting his head there, and I remember one of the guards kicking his fucking head off of it. The autopsy photos show a large gash on Suleiman's forehead. Could this have been the source? They got him to the ground twice when they were beating him. The third time when they got him to the ground, he had, the, he had his knee on his neck every time they got him to the ground, but the third time he couldn't get back up. After a few minutes, Thibault says he tried to intervene. So when the other inmates started realizing that they were they were that that they were beaten, so I started yelling out after a bit. I'm like, they're, they're beating the shit out of them for no reason. They're all jumping them. All the inmates start kicking their door. They start going crazy. The last time I seen him, he was face down, face down, knee in his neck. When the one guard, the one that actually had the knee on his neck, started noticing that people knew what was going on now inside that cell. I noticed he started yelling out, um, stop resisting, stop resisting. And like it, that, that was at the point where Solomon wasn't even moving anymore, right? And that's when he turned around and looked over his shoulder and seen me watching him and realized I'd seen the whole thing. So he comes out on camera, the idiot, comes out, jumps over Solomon's uh, body, comes out on camera and slams my shutter and then runs back in the cell. And then next thing I hear a code, that's when they call code blue. Code blue, code blue. So I hear all these these footsteps. All the guards run from jail. Boo. So I can't see nothing now, but I hear, uh, is he breathing? And then I hear uh, um, VSA. VSA means vital signs absent. I think he's VSA, yeah. He's VSA, VSA. And then they call medical emergency. Then that's when all the nurses come running down. So his vitals were done. There was no vitals. So after they shut my shutter, then I kind of snapped out of it, and I, I was like, what the fuck? I went, and I remember jumping. I'm not scared of much. I jumped under my covers, and I kept them up to my chin. I was I was like, what the fuck did I just see? What's going on right now? Like, it, it was all, like, coming to me. Like, I was like, like, did he just... I, I didn't know he was dead, to be honest with you. I've seen a lot of messed up stuff in jail, but I've never seen anything like that. I guess, you know, to, to put it in layman terms, correctional officers and the culture that exists are looking to always impress upon the inmate population that we run this place, you don't. This is our rules, this is our institution, it's not yours. It's the script from every prison and cop drama. Us against them. Law and order versus inmate codes of conduct. And Lee Chappelle has seen it all. For over 20 years, starting at the age of 16, he spent his life inside the prison system as an inmate. Now, as an adult, he runs a prison consulting firm that focuses on reforming Ontario and Canada's jails and rehabilitating inmates back into society. He's a guest lecturer in criminology classrooms at the University of Ottawa and an author of a book on Ontario corrections. I wanted to make sense of everything I just heard. I knew about use of force, but... This seemed like something else. Was this just a one-off? Or does it happen often? Lee was able to shed some light on the use of force in Ontario jails. There was an Ontario Ombudsman investigation that was uh, done on excessive force. Released in 2013, uh, excessive force had been used on inmates in Ontario provincial institutions. The investigation was a response to over 350 complaints about excessive use of force against inmates. When the investigation started in 2010, the ombudsman noticed a disturbing trend. 
they found a series of cases where not only did provincial correctional staff use excessive force against inmates, but according to the ombudsman, they had attempted to cover it up. As they tried to delve into this, the more they discovered that there was a lack of compliance in sharing information from corrections and a lack of willingness to share information on each other. Uh, There is a very strong unit of protecting each other when it comes to correctional officers. They adhere to a very strong code, and that is not to tell on on each other, not to put each other in jeopardy or in trouble. So they're very protective of one another, and if you do break that code of silence, uh, there are consequences for correctional officers. There has been historically what they call parking lot justice, where tires are slashed, assaults on other officers if they have been outed as somebody who's given information. When the ombudsman brought its findings to the Ministry of Community Safety and Correctional Services, officials at Corrections didn't believe it. In fact, the ombudsman even said that they were dismissive of these concerns and got defensive. But they still agreed to review 13 cases in particular that were considered the most egregious. These cases became the focus of the ombudsman report. Today, as I release this report, I feel I should start with one of those warnings to the audience that what they're about to see and hear may be disturbing and graphic. On June 11th, 2013, Andre Moren from the Ontario Ombudsman held a press conference for the release of the report. This report is not pretty. It reveals some shocking stories, not just the violence within the provincial correctional system, but of ugly conspiracies to cover up that violence. It exposes corruption and the malignancy within the correctional system that has long been lamented but never eradicated, the code of silence. Uh, That was in 2013, and frankly, there's, um, it's been forgotten. (laughs) It wasn't followed up on, Uh, it was a great, investigative piece, but it was a standalone and moved on and forgotten about. Uh, It still exists. The 13 cases spanned over various detention centers across Ontario. They all recount stories of excessive force on inmates by correctional officers. The report was entitled The Code, a reference to the Code of Silence. Now, the code was a very detailed thing, but then ironically, when you think of it and you look at the code um, and, and how damning it is, you would think there'd be follow-up. None. That was it. It was printed. There was a big picture. Hey, look what we did. And then forgotten. Not No follow-up. Not once have they followed up in any way, shape, or form on this. Um, that's mind-boggling to me. Were all of these cases really not followed up on? We asked the ministry, and they responded saying that any allegations of use of force made against staff are investigated by the ministry. And if the allegations are of a criminal nature, the police are contacted. But they couldn't comment on any of the cases in the code report specifically, or whether they were followed up on. The ministry did respond to the report by adopting some of its recommendations. There was an update to the use of force policies, additional training provided to correctional staff, and the establishment of the CSOI, the Correctional Services Oversight and Investigations Office. They now investigate inmate deaths and uses of force in custody, but haven't released any of that data to the public. What is public is the code report. 
which you can Google and read online. It was clear from the report that the problems weren't at just one jail. It was systemic. But of the 13 cases examined, there's one that jumped out because of how disturbing it was. It's known as the Brian case, and it did occur at the Lindsay Jail, where Suleiman died. Just another warning here. The details of the story are pretty difficult to hear. On September 30th, 2010, inmates had been in lockdown for three straight days, and tensions were high. That evening, inmate Brian started shouting and banging on his cell door, which caused other inmates to join in. To deal with Brian, two officers removed him from his cell and escorted him to a room at the end of a hallway. Now, because the camera only captured the hallway, there are two versions of this story. According to the officers, Brian bumped one of them with his leg, which led to the officer using force on Brian as self-defense. But Brian's version of events is radically different. Here's Brian's story, according to the Ombudsman report. Once he entered the room, a correctional officer stood in front of him and headbutted him in the nose, causing him to fall over. The officer then punched him, banged his head against the wall, squeezed his throat, and forced him to the floor. That officer stood over him while threatening and spitting on him, while another officer stepped on the back of his neck. The surveillance cameras in the hallways captured the officers changing Brian's blood-soaked shirt, using towels to wipe the floor, and throwing away the towel and bloody t-shirt in the garbage. Brian was only photographed and interviewed after his appearance was sanitized. The operational manager later blamed Brian for the incident, and in an injury report, Brian's statement simply read, I fell. The Correctional Investigation and Security Unit were called in to investigate. They learned that the institution's logbooks had no mention of the incident, which goes against ministry policy. And when the nurse arrived after the incident, she assessed Brian for less than a minute but spent seven minutes speaking with the correctional officers. As a result, the two correctional officers were dismissed, but were eventually reinstated and given a five-day suspension. The nurse was dismissed, but eventually reinstated and given a 10-day suspension. And the operational manager received a non-disciplinary warning. I don't want to suggest that this happens every day, all day in our jails, because it doesn't. But whenever something like that does occur, the effort to minimize and cover it up is not a one-off at all. That's consistent. No differently than statements. You'll find that there are you know, nine different officers. Uh, you have almost verbatim the same statement on the same event. This is about protecting one another and having each other's backs. And I would say a high percentage of, of officers are not going there to hurt inmates or to do anything <laughs> terrible. They actually are pretty good people who are doing a, a, a job that's, that's not easy. There's a small percent that are doing a lot of bad things. And I would love to see the majority have the um, grow the internal fortitude to be able to hold them to a higher account because nobody else can, I don't believe. I think it's very hard to do. It's a secretive organization. It's, it's not transparent. So if, I, if I'm a guard, there at the scene and I'm watching other correctional officers 
and I'm thinking, this is excessive. This is this is not right, and I'm not participating. Yeah. There's no way for me to speak out. No. No. I mean, you. Yes, there is a way for you to do so, but you are now putting yourself in harm's way, uh, potentially. Uh, your safety. You would be fearful to do so, and that sounds. sounds pretty serious um, and it's a serious thing to say but but I, I fully believe it um, you, you definitely would not be working safely at that institution anymore you would have a lot of repercussion from your fellow workers and your life would not be the same you'd be going against the grain and there would be consequences December 16th 2016 a day after Suleiman's death Thibault was brought before the Kawartha Lakes police inside the jail to give a witness statement. But he chooses not to tell them anything. There's a recorder on the table, and they go to turn it on. And I said, you're wasting your time, you might as well leave it off. And I was rude, really rude to him. And he's like, he's like, John, I'm just doing my job. And I'm like, well, I'm, I don't have anything to say. He goes, listen, we're investigating an incident that happened earlier. And we know you've seen something. And I go, I didn't see anything. The next day, the police make a second attempt to get a witness statement from Thibault. But once again... I told them no. They talked to everybody in SEG that day. And I'm pretty sure I was the only one that said no. Can you kind of walk, walk us through, like, what was your decision of saying, like, I, I'm not going to talk to you right now? Because it kept bugging me. And I said, no, I'll wait till I get it. I just kept to basically fuck off. I'm not talking to you while I'm in jail. Like, stop coming harass. Like, you're going to get me beat up in here and killed if you keep fucking come trying to interview me. But if I wanted anything to ever get done or justice to ever come for Solomon and his family, I knew talking then wouldn't have been the right time. I wanted to wait until... It was the right time, and I was sure that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to wait till I was outside and had nothing to gain. And nothing to gain. After seven months in solitary confinement, Thibault's sentencing hearing happened on April 10th, 2017. While telling the judge about the emotional and mental toll of segregation, Thibault talked for the first time about Suleiman's death. In a court transcript, he tells the court he had, quote, Witness correctional officers kill an inmate in the jail and says he's been having night terrors ever since. He goes on to say that he didn't want to speak out because of fear that the same thing might happen to him. The judge dropped Thibault's stabbing charge, but he was given an intermittent sentence for other smaller charges. This meant he was free to be released, but had to serve time every weekend at the Lindsay Jail until his sentence was up. Doing one weekend was enough to make me go on the run and get like nine warrants, missing probation, missing my weekends, um, not doing my counseling. Thibault said he couldn't handle being back in the Lindsay jail after what he'd seen. That it fucked my head up seeing Solomon killed and stuff like that. I took off, I ran. In May of 2017, Thibault was arrested again in Peterborough, Ontario. At his sentencing hearing, a Kawartha Lakes police officer was at the courthouse waiting to speak to him. The officer tried again to get a statement. 
The day I came down from court, he was waiting downstairs for me. Well, I got sentenced that day, which means I knew what day I'd be getting out on. I'm like, I'm not doing this when I'm in custody. I, I, I'm like, I'll, I'll help you when I get out. He said I was lying. He says, you know what I think, John? I go, what's that? He goes, I don't think you've seen anything. He goes, I think you're full of shit. That's why you won't fucking meet with us or say anything. Who the fuck would want to be an eyewitness? I know I don't. Thibault claims that there is one piece of evidence that could corroborate his story. The CCTV videotape from the hallway of 8SEG. The tape has not been released to the public, but he's sure that it can back up everything he says. Because if no one's seen the video, including myself, how the fuck do I know what happened in the hallway? Thibault would not talk to the Cortho Lakes police. But he said he made it very clear that the reason was because he was still on the inside. How could he talk about guards who were responsible for his day-to-day life? He said he would talk as soon as he got out. But two days before his release, he heard some news. He read it in the newspaper two days before I got out that the guards were cleared of any wrongdoing and that they're shutting, there's no grounds to charge the guards, that his cause of death was ascertained. ascertained. That's the first time I heard that word. The Kawartha Lakes Police notified the Fakiri family that no charges would be laid on October 27th, 2017. John Thibault was released from jail on October 29th. Why wouldn't Kawartha Lakes Police wait to interview Thibault, potentially a key witness, before closing the investigation? We reached out to the police for a statement on why Thibault was never interviewed, but they declined to comment. There are there are frustrating elements. You're dealing with um, like a population of the public who at that time being incarcerated are probably not super friendly to the state. Tam Bowie is a retired Toronto police detective who's worked on multiple high profile homicide cases and now works as a private investigator. I wanted to speak with him to make sense of everything I've learned so far. I'm not saying that they're all obstructionists or they're all criminals. There are people serving dead time waiting for a trial and they could be exonerated. That means they're innocent in, in Canadian law. And so you're dealing with an element of, of the public who you know, might frustrate your investigation because they are perhaps anti-state at that time in their life. But it doesn't mean that you don't make your best effort to interview those individuals and elicit as much evidence as you can from them. So we, we know now that there was an eyewitness to what happened. Uh, yeah. Mr. John Thibault, who was in the cell across from Suleiman's. What, what, at what length do you go to, to interview them? How many times do you, do you interview them? How many times do you try? Uh, and, and does it seem weird to you that they would close their investigation before um, speaking to him? You know, this this is a, a can be a very frustrating element for homicide investigators or people that we know are eyewitnesses. Um, there's no compulsion in Canada for a witness to provide any kind of statement to law enforcement. So, like, you have to appreciate that and understand and look at it with that lens that in Canada, there's no requirement for a witness in the community to cooperate with the police investigation. Now, if you knowingly obstruct it, you can be subject to obstruction of justice. I would certainly not, you know, personally, if I had an eyewitness and they told me, hey, Tam, I can, I'm going to give you a statement, but I ain't doing it while I'm in custody because the people I'm giving a statement about are the very people that are, like, 
my shepherds that are guarding me in this institutional environment. Uh, like I'm getting released in four days. I will probably wait four days to take a statement from that person. Hmm. And I, I, I don't have all the knowledge that Kortha Lakes and the OPP had. My, my question would be, what's the rush not to charge someone? Sometimes police are heavily criticized in not rushing to charge someone when there's a public safety issue afoot. But what really is the rush not to charge someone? So if that can be pushed back to exercise more investigative techniques or continue with your investigation, what is the rush not to do that? Whatever the reason for why the Kawartha Lakes Police ended their investigation, the result was the same. Thibault's statement was not collected, and he believed the case was over. If I found out they already cleared the guards any wrongdoing, I would be less likely to want to come in and give a statement. And that's exactly what happened. After that, I'm like, oh, well, fuck. It's out of my hands now. That's exactly what happened. They were right. But the family didn't give up. Good for them. Good for them. When John Thibault was finally released from jail, he couldn't stop thinking about Suleiman. First thing I did is I went to the library and hopped online and pulled up Solomon Fakiri, uh, death in jail. And I seen his brother bawling, bawling to saying his brother. And it just fucking broke my heart, man. I'm here to ask you what I've been asking for the last three and a half years. It's to help my family. It's to help every Canadian suffering from mental illness. Despite the Fakiri investigation closing with no charges laid, Thibault said he still wanted to get his story out there. And so, in 2018, he broke his silence. He first met with a private investigator working for the Fakiri family and provided them with a recorded statement. I gave him the tape recorded thing of what happened so he could let the family listen to it. I said, there it is. Now you know, you've heard it, let them hear it. Afterwards, he gave that interview with CBC's The Fifth Estate. From the back of a car, Thibault talked on camera about what he witnessed that day. For the first time, the public were finally hearing from an eyewitness. And at that point, it was more or less like I gave the family their closure, but now I wanted to expose the guards to what they were. That's what that was about. This is about, you know what, you guys, you guys make this guy look like a piece of shit. He had a mental, mental illness. I go, I'm gonna, maybe you guys will never get charged, but I'm putting you on the spot. Fuck this. And I made sure that I laid it on the line that day. And then on November 12th, 2018, something major happened. Now there's a break in the case. Ontario Provincial Police have reopened a case we first told you about two years ago. The case has now been reopened. The OPP are launching an independent investigation into this case. The office of the chief coroner announced that, in the course of its own investigation, new evidence had been identified. As a result, a second investigation would take place. This time, it was led by the Ontario Provincial Police. The chief coroner didn't say what the new evidence was, but either way, a new investigation meant the inclusion of John Thibault's eyewitness testimony, something the coroners didn't have the first time. But originally, the coroner was told by the guards, nobody touched his neck. 
That's Ted Morocco, one of the Fakiri family's lawyers. And so as a result of that, the coroner said, well, okay, I'm told nobody touched his neck. I don't see any evidence that he was necessarily suffocated. So I'm I'm not ruling it out, but I'm, I'm okay. No one seems to tell me that they saw him getting choked. Tebow says he did see someone put a knee on Soleiman's neck. Does that mean that the coroner has to change her report? No. But we have taken the position that that was new information which was previously withheld from her. How reliable is his testimony? I mean, is there any doubt that maybe he could have been making it up? I I, I can say this. I have no reason to think that Mr. Tebow is not telling the truth. I, I am confident saying that. I have no reason to believe that he is not telling the truth. Thibault agreed to speak to the OPP and give an official statement for their investigation. It was for me, man. I needed to get it off my chest. I needed it. It was, it was eating me up. And even my own friends said that they said, they're like, there's a piece of you missing, man. Like, you haven't been the same. I sleep easier. I can tell you that. That's for sure. But they, there was no reason to do what they did to him. I wouldn't want to see that. What they did to him, I wouldn't want to see done to anybody, man. With John Thibault's eyewitness testimony now a part of the new OPP investigation, would any charges be laid? And against whom? Thibault was only one side of the story. I wanted to know the other side. So we reached out to the Lindsay Jail the union that represents the Lindsay jail guards, and even the Ministry of the Solicitor General. No one would speak to us about this case. We know there were four Lindsay jail staff that were fired after an internal ministry investigation in 2018. But other than being in connection with Suleiman's death, the reasons for the firings are still unknown. According to the police report, there were between 20 to 30 guards present at the cell area that day. So why just those four officers? Were they somehow the responsible ones? I had a feeling we weren't getting the full story. Hearing Lee Chappelle talk about the code of silence, I knew I had to look at the bigger picture to understand what was right in front of me. But there's no actual accountability. The sergeants know this is going on. The staff know this is going on. They know who the people that are using excessive forces. The question is, why is nobody speaking out? Next time on Unascertained. We have an update now to a case we've been following. But if the stress of the beating caused the death, there's no mystery to it. You've interfered with somebody's bodily and emotional harm. You've committed a crime, in my view. How do you go home to your family after you've seen death or, you know, abuse with staff on inmate? Seeing that and then going home, how do you deal with that? Unascertained is written and produced by me, Yusuf Zin, and Kevin Young. Kevin Young is also our audio engineer. Our story editor is Michelle Shepard. Our intern is Selena Gallardo. Our legal counsel is Willa Marcus. Katie O'Connor is our producer for TVO Podcasts. The executive producer of Digital for TVO is Lori Few. The executive for Current Affairs and Documentaries for TVO is John Ferry. Theme song and music by Blue Dot Sessions. Unascertained is produced by Innerspeak and TVO.